All right, we are back. It was kind of a kind of a bummer to end on <laughs> world leaders even worse than Trump when it came to dealing with uh, the pandemic. But I guess we can take comfort in knowing that most places in the world are doing better than that. And even though we were one of the worst, we are nevertheless making progress right here in the U.S. of A. But sadly, I hold in my left hand a briefing from our favorite, The Week magazine, from the March 26th issue, dealing with America's falling fertility rate. We've opined on this program in the past that there seems to be a disconnect between biologists, people that think in terms of biology, and and people who are economists who think in terms of, well, some might say their own hallucinations, but that would be too strong. Let's call it the world of their own construction. Biologists have been looking at planet Earth for quite some time now and noting that if we had 2.5 billion people in the early 1950s, and we now have three times that, the fact that there's three humans on Earth for every one less than 70 years ago, well, that's just going to create a lot of excess pressure on our ecosystem here on Spaceship Earth. Many have advocated for zero population growth. At least many did a half century ago. The whole thing kind of faded away as conservatives were against it. The Catholic Church to this day is against any form of birth control. And liberals wound up sort of going along. Uh, progressive people said, well, geez, we can't be you know, restricting people's right to reproduce. That would be terrible. Yet if you look around at the disappearing rainforests around the world and the fact that we're continuing to burn more and more fossil fuels to supply more and more people with more and more of the good things in life, well, biologists would say we're, we're going to exceed our carrying capacity here on Earth and must not continue to grow to seven and a half to eight to nine to ten billion people. Many have pointed out that we will have more diseases under the circumstances as we move into wilder and wilder areas and have animals and the viruses that are in them jump over into humans. We've gotten a, we've gotten a lesson from COVID-19 that, yeah, yeah, that, that happens. It, it is interesting to note, on a, on a, on a moment of, uh, of sanity, I guess you'd say, the fact that um, down in Brazil, where they're lopping down rainforest like there's no tomorrow, and someday there will be no tomorrow, apparently businessmen who rarely preach greenery, noticed last July that the rampant deforestation in the Amazon was hurting foreign investment. Foreigners were saying, we're not going to be part of this, and that was hurting Brazil. So no less than 38 CEOs of Brazilian corporations wrote President Bolsonaro, suggesting he do something. He did. He ignored them. It's noted that the rate of deforestation, as reported in November, was 10% faster in 2020 than in 2019, yet Bolsonaro slashed the budget on environment enforcement for a third year in a row. But there are forces that realize this is a very bad thing and are rising up. American diplomacy under Joseph Biden is seeking to persuade Bolsonaro not to keep chopping up the rainforest and turning it into a source of carbon emissions which causes this correspondent to pause, take a deep breath, and say, well, I'm glad Joe Biden's the president. Back to this idea of, of a falling fertility rate in America, which is what the briefing was about. 
a biologist like myself says, thank God. An economist instead hits the panic button. Noted the briefing. The U.S.'s total fertility rate, or number of babies each woman is expected to have during her lifetime, reached a record low of 1.7 births per woman in 2019. That's the latest year for which data was available. That year, the number of babies born in the U.S. was just just 3.74 million, which is a 35-year low, although it's still 10,000 babies a day. This dramatic drop in births mirrors a worldwide trend. Britain, Canada, France, and Australia all have fertility rates below 1.9 in 2018, which is below the replacement rate of 2.1 needed to sustain their populations. Of course, that's assuming that sustaining their populations is what we need to do. And some experts, I presume these are economic quote-unquote experts, are calling this phenomenon a demographic time bomb. In coming years, lower fertility rates could have profound economic consequences with employers lacking sufficient workers to grow the economy. And of course, growing the economy means chopping down the rainforest, selling more stuff. And with fewer young workers paying into Social Security and Medicare, these safety net programs will be in trouble. In the early 1980s, the magazine notes the U.S. had about five workers providing the taxes to support each retired beneficiary. By 2019, the Social Security Administration says the ratio has declined to 2.8 workers per retiree. By 2035, it might drop to 2.2. Maybe more if we keep replacing all of our workers with robots. They quoted a Dowell Myers, University of Southern California demographer, who said, it's a crisis. We need to have enough working age people to carry the load of these seniors. Well, to my way of thinking, that's short-sighted. And it's been noted that the pandemic caused a baby bust. The pandemic is expected to result in 300 to 500,000 fewer babies born in the United States. Lockdowns and fear kept young people from meeting up and marrying. And the economic hardship discouraged many young couples from having children. Housing costs, of course, have played a role in all of this. Let's, Let's take a look at that. The median U.S. home price in 1953 was $18,000. If you adjust that for today's inflation, that would be about $177,000. Yet today, the median home price in America is $301,000. Of course, that includes, that includes places like Kansas. One of my local real estate uh, wheeler dealers sent me one of his newsletters a couple of weeks ago noting the, the average home prices in the Tri-City area in Alameda County of Fremont, Newark, and Union City. Union City formerly a rather impoverished area, came in at over a million dollars, whereas in Fremont, it was over a million and a half, a million and a half dollars, average price for a home. Now, a lot of this is driven by the fact that, you know, um, a lot of people want to live in the Bay Area. It's a nice place. And the real estate developers have taken advantage of that supply versus demand. Well, more correctly, the demand to note that what we need to do is make more of a supply, and make lots of dough off of it, which is what they do. Needless to say, young people who cannot afford homes or even a two-bedroom apartment are less inclined to marry and have children. To which I would again pause and say, is that such a bad thing? Well, lots of American economists think so, and lots of economists in other countries think so. Apparently, nearly 30% of the countries of the world are officially adopting pro-natalist policies 
to encourage their citizens to have children. Hungary is spending 5% of its GDP on policies such as free treatment cycles at nationalized in vitro fertilization clinics for women under 40, upfront loans to newlyweds that can be written off with each birth, and even a lifetime exclusion from income tax for moms with three or more kids. Poland is giving its mothers about $140 per child per month. Russia is giving parents with two or more children one-off payments of about $8,000. And South Korea has spent $130 billion on a similar program since 2006. And it turns out that none of these policies are achieving what these countries hope for. The week cited research noting that high-quality Public daycare centers are the only policy that leads to significant increases in the number of babies women choose to have. I just, again, I sort of have to pause. Oh, let me need a drink. Hold on. So, yeah, we have a lot more babies now, and then we get to 8, 9, 10, 11 billion people on Earth. And then what? What we're doing now is not sustainable. How about if we add... 3.5 billion more folks on planet Earth. More than we're walking on the planet in 1953. Well, all I can say is, there's going to be trouble. And since we're having a rather troubled radio program today, let's let's talk about something else that uh, represents a great deal of trouble and I don't think we've really talked much about. If you're of a certain age, the following two words will provoke a response. The words are, Dugway Proving Ground and... Sheep. I'm sure a lot of you listening at this moment are going, oh yeah. But that means you were reading the papers or paying attention to the news back in spring of 1968. Something quite astounding took place out in the fields of Utah. And it's worth taking a look at, not just for what happened, but for the public relations battle that took place in its wake. To quote from an article I stumbled upon in what's, I guess, described as getpocket.com, the title of the article, How the Death of 6,000 Sheep Spurred the American Debate on Chemical Weapons, piece by Lorraine Boissonault. Her article started as follows. The morning of March 14, 1968, began just like any other day in the rural snow-covered hills of Skull Valley, Idaho. But for Toole County Sheriff Faye Gillette, the carnage of the day would be forever sealed in his mind And for the rest of the country, it would come to be a flashpoint for a national debate about the use of chemical weapons. Gillette later told investigative reporter Seymour Hirsch, I've never seen such a sight in my life, describing thousands of dead livestock splayed across the landscape. It was like a movie version of death and destruction, you know, like after the bomb goes off, sheep laying all over, all them down, patches of white as far as you could see. Had the sheep eaten a poisonous plant? Had they come into contact with foliage sprayed with pesticides? Or might there be an even more alarming culprit? The Dugway Proving Ground, which is the Army's largest base for chemical and biological weapons testing, was located 80 miles from Salt Lake City and 27 miles from these stricken animals. Rather predictably, I think you'd say in retrospect, as more sheep sickened and died, spokesmen from the Dugway Proving Ground denied testing any weapons the days before the die-off. But on March 21st, U.S. Senator Frank Moss, Democrat representing Utah, released a Pentagon document that proved otherwise. On March 13th, the day before Sheriff Gillette came across the macabre scene, a high-speed jet had sprayed 320 gallons of nerve gas 
VX across the grounds in a weapons test. Yes, the deadly nerve gas, VX, which has been in headlines in recent years. Pentagon thought it would be a good idea to spray 300 gallons of it in Utah. And it turns out the odorless, tasteless chemical is so deadly that less than 10 milligrams is enough to kill a human. In the weeks and months after the event, local vets and health officials investigated the matter. And their findings were that the jet that sprayed the VX had experienced a malfunction in its delivery tanks and accidentally released the gas at a much higher altitude than intended, allowing it to be blown far from the testing grounds. The ill-fated sheep had been grazing on grass covered in the chemical. Some died within 24 hours, while others remained ill for weeks before succumbing. This is a big news item back in the spring of 1968. But despite the widespread coverage of the incident, both locally and nationally, few people in the U.S. experienced much real alarm. This was in part due to the fact that the military was the largest employer in Utah. Concern from the highest level of the state official among down was that too much investigating or talking about the incident might make the Army move its base from Dugway, according to Seymour Hirsch. For its part, the Army never released a full detailed report, but they did pay rancher Alvin Hatch, whose sheep accounted for about 90% of those afflicted, $376,000. The military also lent bulldozers for the mass burial of the dead sheep and initiated a review of the safety procedures at Dugway. Noted the piece, but even with the sheep buried and settlements paid, the Army couldn't make the incident disappear. The deaths of the sheep was only the starting point for what became a years-long battle over chemical weapons in the context of the Cold War and, Amer- and American military action in Vietnam. And it's all because Richard McCarthy, a Democratic congressman from New York, happened to see an NBC documentary about the incident in February of 1969. I believe I saw that same documentary. Unfortunately, I was not a New York congressman and could do little about it. Writing about the incident, science historian Roger Erdley Pryor said chemical and biological weapons were another side of the nuclear arms race, but they were much more secret and hidden aspect of it. They were much less known until Richard McCarthy made this a national issue. Before that point, chemical weapons were largely believed to be banned from use by international agreement. After World War I, in which every major power deployed chemical weapons, resulting in one million casualties and more than 90,000 deaths, Western nations signed the 1925 Geneva Protocol. The agreement prohibited the use of chemical and biological weapons, and for a time, it looked like it would be obeyed. But wouldn't you know it? The United States never signed the agreement. Between 1961 and 1969 alone, the U.S. military spent two billion dollars on its chemical weapons stockpile. You may be disturbed to also know that over that same period, the military dumped hundreds of thousands of tons of old chemical weapons directly into the ocean without bothering to keep records of precisely where or how many weapons were disposed of. Yet the American public was almost entirely unaware of any stockpile or the dangers of testing, storing, and transporting them. About the only synthetic chemical being discussed in the public sphere about that time were pesticides harmful to the environment, like DDT, and so-called non-lethal chemicals used in Vietnam, like the defoliating herbicide Agent Orange, and tear gas. The piece notes that Agent Orange would later be discovered to be carcinogenic, resulting in a multitude of health problems for Vietnam veterans and residents in Vietnam. 
After McCarthy saw the NBC piece in the Dugway sheep killed, he was determined to learn more and expose the chemical weapons complex to the rest of America. Beginning in May of 69, McCarthy instigated congressional hearings that revealed the extent of the U.S. chemical weapons program, and he uncovered the disposal program and had a rather distasteful acronym, CHASE, which stood for Cut Holes and Sink Them. A year after the Dugway incident, in July of 1969, a leak was developed in a nerve gas weapon on the U.S. military base in Okinawa. 24 people were injured, although none apparently fatally. The press and public quickly drew a line between Okinawa and Dugway. The Pentagon then admitted that besides Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, the Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland and Fort McClellan in Alabama have also been the sites of open-air testing, open-air testing of Tabin, Sarin, Soman, VX, and mustard gas. The military officials argued that tear gas, at least, had an important place in the Vietnam War. It could protect U.S. soldiers by flushing Viet Cong soldiers out of hiding without killing innocent Vietnamese citizens. But after years of growing steadily more unpopular, even the argument for the humane, the humane use of tear gas in Vietnam lost its power. Gee. In 1975, Congress approved the protocol, and President Gerald Ford ratified it. The U.S. would no longer use chemical weapons, lethal or non-lethal, in warfare. Let's stress that. In warfare. Rather ironically, tear gas has continued to be used as a weapon of pacification domestically. Law enforcement, from local police officers to the National Guard, have continued to use tear gas to quell riots and prevent property damage. And sadly, chemical weapons, which scientists of the 1960s and 70s described as emerging from Pandora's box, continue to haunt us. From their deadly use by dictator Bashar al-Assad on his own people in Syria, to which I would add, and also the use of it in Iraq, from the nerve gas that the U.S. gave Saddam Hussein, to Russia's apparent use of a nerve gas agent on former intelligence officials in the U.K., it's clear that the use and legacy of synthetic chemicals is far from over. But the piece closes, at least we have sheep to thank for the knowledge we have that this stuff is out there. Which reminds me, we're going to have to get our toxicologist friend, uh, Howard McKinney, back on this program to talk a little bit about this stuff. To which I, I think I need to add, before we close this, that nerve gases are also known as pesticides. You can use very similar related compounds to these deadly things used in potentially warfare um, in different doses, spray them on crops, and um, kill insects, insect pests that would eat our crops. This has probably not been, you know, the best idea anybody thought of in agriculture. But again, we come down to this battle between biology and economics. A half century ago, and it's shocking to realize I can make the statement a half century ago when I was getting educated in such matters, it was made crystal clear that one problem in agriculture was monoculture. If you plant vast acreages of just one thing, that just one thing is more vulnerable to predation by insects. It was recommended many decades ago that we stop doing this, mix up our crops so that you had smaller areas of one thing or another. Biologically, that makes perfect sense. But when you know it, the economics of it don't pencil out. So that is not what we have done. We had Michael Pollan on this program many years ago, and he described how they went in places like Iowa from traditional farms where you would have cattle 
that would be fed the silage, the leftover product of the corn. And pigs may also be raised and chickens, etc., etc., etc. And all that went by the boards as every square inch of Iowa, for example, very much went over to being planted in corn plants. Anyway, I don't feel like revisiting that today, but if you never caught that interview with Michael Pollan, we refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com, where we talked about it back then. All right, the time we have left, I think I'm going to quit talking about uh, eco-disasters, COVID stupidity, bad political leadership, and instead focus on some lighter fare. And what better way to do that than to visit the obituary column? Over the years, we've made it a policy to talk about the passing of lives that deserve some commentary. And this invites one of our favorite quotes we've used so many times before, but by God, we're going to use it again. The quote, which I guess I'm going to have to paraphrase, is that the news consists of informing people that Lord Jones is dead, even those who never knew Lord Jones was alive. Check that. That not one of you listening out there would go four for four on the following list of people we need to briefly talk about. Bruce Myers, David Mintz, Steve Spurrier, and Lou Otens. Mr. McMillan's making book that most of you are going to be 0 for 4, himself leading the list. Let's start with Steve Spurrier. Actually, I admit, I also am 0 for 4 on this particular quartet. But I couldn't resist the economist obituary of Steve Spurrier. He was a, an expert on the tasting of wine. He was an expert on wine, I guess is the best way to describe him. And since we enjoy the writing in The Economist, let's just quote from them. Said the magazine, Stephen Spurrier, wine expert and host of the world's most notorious tasting, died March 9th, age 79. Showdowns between France and England are two a penny. Between France and California, they are rare. But add an Englishman into the mix, even a charming, sprightly upper class, one with exquisite manners, kingfisher, blue dinner jackets, and handmade shoes, and the scene may change dramatically. So Stephen Spurrier intended, when on May 24, 1976, he supervised the setting out of a light, pleasant room in the Intercontinental Room in Paris. He invited nine French experts to ostensibly a simple tasting of California wines to celebrate America's bicentennial. Then, at the last minute, his head always fizzing like a Krug with interesting ideas, he thought it might be more fun to pit French wines against California in a blind tasting. The French, he reasoned, were bound to scoff if they knew that a wine came from upstart Napa Valley. What if they did not know? The contest came down to Chardonnays, the California version against the long-established white Burgundies, and Cabernet Sauvignons, Bordeaux Grands Cruz Chateau Reds against Parvenu vintages from America's west coast. Not far into the testing, the judges were already confused, cross-checking their reactions, unwittingly praising California while doing down France. And then the result. After 20 wines had been sipped, it was a bombshell. A 1973 Chardonnay from Napa, in only its second vintage, was declared the best white. A 1973 Cabernet Sauvignon from Stag's Leap Cellars, also in its second vintage, was the best red. The judges sat in horror and disbelief. California had triumphed. France had fallen from its pedestal. This little item has, did not go unnoticed by California vintners. Then we have Dave Mintz. In the early 1970s, Mintz realized he was missing a business opportunity. He owned several kosher delicatessens and a booming catering business in New York. 
but because Orthodox Jewish dietary laws banned him from serving meat and dairy as part of the same meal, he was losing customers who craved ice cream for dessert. Tipped at the potential of tofu as a dairy substitute, Mintz bought a gallon of the stuff and began experimenting. It took several years, but yes, he did finally come up with tofuti. And his success with tofuti ice cream led him to develop some 35 plant-based products, including tofu-based cheesecakes, pizza, ravioli, and Mince's Blintzes. Who knew? Bruce Myers, on the other hand, back in 1963, was looking for a cheap way to reach remote surfing locations in Mexico's Baja, California. But the jeeps he used struggled for traction in the sand dunes. But in 1963, he spotted a stripped-down Volkswagen Beetle speeding across the sands at Pismo Beach. The self-described beach bum retreated to his garage in Newport Beach and spent 18 months crafting a sand vehicle. Myers removed the Beetle's body, shortened its floor section, and added a lightweight fiberglass body, two bug-eyed front lights, and four cartoonishly big tires. Thus, he invented the dune buggy. When you know it, rivals began churning out knockoff dune buggies, and after he lost a legal fight against a copycat manufacturer, he shut his firm in 1971. Said Myers, it took 10 years before I could hear the word dune buggy and not get furious. But in the 1990s, he did return to selling limited edition Myers Manx kits. In the end of his life, he was philosophical. If you think of the happiness that I brought to those people, well, that's a good thing. And finally, there's Lou Ottens. He was a Dutchman who, in the early 1960s, found himself fuming at a bulky reel-to-reel tape machine. He wanted to listen to a piece of music, but instead had to spend hours threading a piece of magnetic tape from one reel to the other. Otens, then the head of product development at the Dutch electronics firm Philips, went to work the next day and told his team to develop a new audio format, something that was cheap, reliable, and portable. Thus, the compact cassette was unveiled in 1963, and a musical revolution quickly followed. An estimated 100 billion cassettes have been sold around the world. Oten said it was a breakthrough because it was foolproof. Everyone could put music in their pocket. And there you have it. Four lives who influenced us all. And my God, ending on a cassette tape means we could use anything in the world as a musical bed for our outro. I'll leave it up to the producer of the show, Mr. Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. And yes, it turns out that wasn't a cassette in my pocket. It's just that I was glad to see you.